Hello, hello. <laughs> Still got so used to hearing my voice, it's pretty cool. All right, where are we going? Hey you and welcome. My name is Mike and in this whole podcast, we, that's you and it's me and I guess kind of whoever is listening to this, maybe maybe it's multiple people at the same time. You know, how, how y'all doing today? Good, bad, indifferent, up to, up to much while you're listening to this? Well, you know what, here, listen, whatever you're doing, I hope it's fun, and I hope you're having a good day. Or at least it gets better from here. And, uh, you know, thanks for listening. But, but here, enough of that. You're here to listen to me tell you a story. A story that takes us back to Canada, of all places, if you can believe that. You know, funnily enough, I've never actually been to Canada myself. I've been to the USA loads of times, but never to the country on top. It looks it looks beautiful, though. Always wanted to, and the friends, you know, and my friends who have been there, they really have nothing bad to say about it. But maybe they don't know this story. Now, this is one of those real mysterious and creepy ones, my friends. It is set in the wilds of Canada, and it takes us to a lookout tower. One of those, like, you know, fire lookout towers. For any gamers out there, you know, there's an awesome indie game called Firewatch. Essentially, in the game, you play a guy who goes into a remote fire tower for a season. You're in the wilderness all alone, and creepy stuff starts happening. Now, <laughs> don't know if this story was uh, was an inspiration, but it definitely, definitely could be. Let's give it a go. With more than eight thousand wildfires across Canada every year. Are you for real? Really? Hmm. The first and best line of defense are the hundreds of manned lookout towers across the country. There are 127 lookout towers measuring between 20 and 100 feet scattered across the province of Alberta alone. Now out of all these towers, the Athabasca lookout tower is more valuable than most. It's, it's a big, it's the big dog, it's the important one. That has given its proximity to the tiny ex-mining town of Hinton and the dense uh, woodland. You know, if a fire were allowed to get out of control, there would be a serious possibility that the entire town could be engulfed in flames. In summertime, you know, especially, things can escalate from a single discarded cigarette butt to, well, you know, hundreds of acres of forests not being there anymore, essentially. Like, every passing second a fire goes unnoticed, or is just, you know, allowed to burn just a little bit longer. You're looking at, you know, hundreds, possibly thousands more trees, um, not being trees anymore, being ash. And it's, you know, it's not easy to find people who can stomach the isolation of being in these fire towers. You know, sometimes for, sometimes it could be for up to a month or even longer, you know, by themselves. It's a lot of isolation. You know, okay, some people, you will... Really, you have to be able to thrive in your own company. And also to maintain intense concentration for hours. Hours at a time. Like, it takes a really deep-seated passion to commit to the job and lifestyle of a fire watch worker. It can't really be overstated just how important the job is and how unique the demands are. Those suited to the task, they're a rare breed, my friends. You know, I, I guarantee you, a lot of people think they are. Oh man, fuck, that sounds awesome. I'd be, I'd love to be out there, you know, by myself, chilling, one with nature, away from the, away, you know, saying goodbye to all that, to the city life, and just, you know, chilling, right, relaxing. 
after a, probably about a couple of days, a lot of people would be racing back to civilization. So what exactly is the day-to-day -day life for Firewatchers in like these lonely towers in the remotest parts of national parks? Uh, pretty dull, lonely, monotonous. If a fire does start, lookouts, they first have to figure out where exactly it is, what caused it, what keeps it going, and how is it behaving. They then radio the fire in to a centralized dispatch center where, you know, it's it's reported to the responsible agency who should be putting a bit of, putting a bit of agua on it. After that, it's really then up to the agency to decide whether they should actually tackle the fire or just let the fire burn itself out. You know, it, it, being a fire watch, being working as a fire watcher can be, it can be hard. It's, you know, to start, it's described almost like, like a meditation. But after a while, the loneliness can get to you. Your, your mental health can severely wear down if you're not prepared. Like one story I was reading of a guy, you know, he was out there for a month. When he went back to, to his town, to his family, to his house, he literally had to lock himself away for a couple of days before he could reintegrate himself into regular life. Now, there's a hell of a lot less fire towers now than there were before, you know, obviously due to planes, due to cameras, due to satellites. They can all do the same job, but fire towers, fire watch towers, they still exist. And there are some creepy, pretty creepy stories you can read about things these people have experienced. Unexplained lights, mysterious people out there, mysterious watchers. I mean, there is a lot of bullshit stories, no sleeps, creepypastas, urban legends, whatever, which are fun, but you know, not real. This story is real. So Firewatchers didn't get much more suited to the job than Stephanie Stewart. By 2006, 70-year-old Stephanie had been working for the Alberta provincial government as a fire lookout every summer for the last 18 years. The most recent 13 of those years being spent living and working at the Athabasca Tower, a place where, I mean, truly, the views do not get much more stunning. It's right by Jasper National Park, which, you know, wow, wow, wee wah, is the only cliched thing I can say. And it's surrounded by endless, endless forests. So, life for Stephanie, now as a fire watcher, you know, it's not only a mentally demanding job with hours long, you know, with long hours of discipline and concentration required. It's also a physical job. You're, you know, to me, there's not much. Um, what are those things that take people upstairs? You know, you sit in those those yokes. There's not many of them out in the wilds, right? And the higher the tower, the more important it is because it offers you know a better scope of view. Lookout towers can be up to 100 feet high, and the only way to access this particular tower we are talking about is with a ladder. Stephanie had to climb a 100-foot ladder every day. Like, a lot of lookout towers will have stairs, but not this one. And with, you know, you'd be up in that tower for hours at a time. So you really have to be up there pretty constantly. Like, you, you bring your provisions uh, up to the top with you, and you better be watching because you do not want to miss any smoke. So you have to climb up this ladder that's 100 feet high with a big old you know, backpack, right? That would be a strenuous enough task for a fit 30-year-old. Stephanie was over double that age, but she wasn't any regular septuagenarian. Stephanie, she was originally from Canmore, Alberta. Canmore, it's a small ex-coal mining town 50 miles from Calgary on the edge of Banff National Park. And Stephanie, standing between 5'1 and 5'2 and weighing just 105 pounds, 
She was small, but she was mighty. Her daughter, Lori, described her as a hell of a woman. Very strong, very capable, and described, you know, that tower as being her life. So, like, just seven months prior to when our story really begins, Stephanie, along with her friend, her daughter, and her son-in-law, they climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Stephanie was 69 years of age. Firewatch Tower uh, watchers, I guess, um, have to be real comfortable being uncomfortable when you're out there on top of this 100-foot tower and it's like a real tiny kind of little thingy, right? I'd be going mad, especially when, you're, you know, your, your nearest neighbor is goddamn Sasquatch. As you all know, my mortal enemy. And Stephanie was clearly very good at that. Like, Jade, no stopping her, right? She could probably take take anything, take anything. She could, she could take whatever they could give her. She was just made for adventure, you know? Fair, fair play to you. Going to the store is enough of an adventure for me. But, you know, whatever floats your boat. I mean, I think I would definitely, I personally would definitely be the type that if I went out there, you know, for the first day or two, I might be good. Then I might start shitting myself at every branch I heard around me that broke. And pretty swiftly after that, I'd probably just go insane. I'd get naked, slather myself in mud, turn the Firewatch Terror into my own little private kingdom, and try and break the world record for how many times you can masturbate in one day. Actually, I changed my mind. That sounds pretty fucking cool. <clears throat> anyway, how about you just forget I said all that? Let's uh, stay on topic. Back to Stephanie. I mean, I know I tell scary stories on this podcast, but I don't want to give you nightmares. She was seen as an inspiration to her fe fellow climbers. Like, she, you know, when they were climbing up Kilimanjaro, she wasn't like, at the back of that, at the back of the pack, she was the one keeping everybody's spirits going. Nope, Stephanie took everything to the, to the extreme. Even when she was home, you know, when she was gardening, she had this massive, big garden that regular people would just find incredibly daunting. She always wanted to be active. She was moving all the time, and not only that, she didn't just love adventuring. She had a creative streak, choosing to spend her time painting and reading and writing and all of that. So let's get back to well, what happened. Now, now, here's one thing to know about this particular tower. Each lookout tower has a cabin. Now, most lookout towers in the United States, uh, they're slightly different in that the tower and the cabin, they're elevated, right? The, the, the tower and the cabin are essentially the same place. Where in a lot of these Canadian versions, the tower is separated from the cabin. So you got the tower, and then on the ground, you have this cabin at the base of the tower. Now, Stephanie was known to be experienced, and she was reliable. So, when the 8am sit-rep call from the Athabasca Tower on the 26th of August 2006 didn't come in as usual, it, it was odd, but, you know, certainly not seen as a reason for panic. Every morning, they would call in, you know, hey, I'm still out here, I'm still alive, um, you know, how are you? So that morning, maybe people were thinking she just missed her call. There would be a m million legitimate reasons for missing the call. But time did go by. If she missed the 8 a.m., she would certainly call in again later. They then decided to call Stephanie, just to make sure, you know, she, she was okay. She hadn't taken a fall, hurt herself somehow. Like, she wasn't exactly a spring chicken at this point. So, ring, ring, and the phone at Athabasca was picked up. So... An immediate, whew, sigh of relief from the caller, which did not last long. Rather than hearing Stephanie's familiar voice at the end of the line, they simply heard breathing. And then it hung up. At this point now, no one quite knew what was going on. 
yeah, the phone call was uh, like straight out of odd, <laughs> to say the least. But you know, it doesn't mean there's anything weird going on. So it was decided the best thing to do was to drive out to the tower and perform an unofficial welfare check. And on arrival, nothing really seemed amiss. Everything outside was orderly. Stephanie's Dodge pickup that was still parked right outside. But inside the cabin was a different story. Not only was there no sign of Stephanie or anyone else, there was blood. And on the stove, a pot of water was boiling. On the stairs, blood had been smeared. Obviously, something was, was um, very wrong. Finally, Stephanie was reported missing, and within hours, a huge search was organized with police, volunteers, many of whom knew Stephanie personally, combing the dense forest around the tower. And they found nothing. No sign of Stephanie, nor anything else, any other evidence. Back at the cabin, detectives considered uh, potential animal attack or some kind of medical episode that might have left Stephanie confused and wa wandering off into the surrounding wilderness. Now, the, like quickly, an animal attack was ruled out. Um, there was no indication an animal had, had been there. Animals, you know, especially those big and brave enough to take on a human, even one as, as small as Stephanie, they would leave a mess uh, behind if a bear or wolves or something, you know, came in. Sasquatch, that fucking guy. You would know, so it was way too clean for it to have been an animal. The idea that Stephanie maybe hit her head and wandered off in a panic, that was more of a faint hope than a realistic theory, and it didn't last long when it was discovered that several items of bedding were missing from the cabin. Among those were, were two pillows, a bedsheet, and a Navajo-patterned duvet cover. Now, there were many reasons that they could have been missing, whether they were used to wrap a body or to remove potential DNA evidence, though none of the reasons could be seen as positive for Stephanie Stewart. The investigation was at a loss from the very beginning. There was no obvious suspects, motivation, or clues or evidence. Stephanie, she was kind. She was a well-liked, respected lady. Why the hell anyone would want to harm her? It just... Nothing. No, no. It was possible that the motive was robbery. Stephanie, she had a gold analog watch that was noted to be missing from the cabin, but, you know, it had little value. It was, it was sentimental to Stephanie, and that's why she kept it. But it's also possible that Stephanie herself had, had, a, had to watch honor when she took these items, went to have a sleep, you know, a, a little nap in the woods, taking pillows and shit with her. I don't think so. We do know that Stephanie last spoke to her daughter, Lori, the night before at around 9pm. And according to her daughter, she was in grand form, grand mood. She was fine, no plans to leave the tower, and she definitely had no you know, indication of any sort of distress. She was, yeah, she was in perfect form. Regular, regular, all day. So whatever happened must have taken place in those 10 or so hours between that phone call to her daughter and the phone line going dead the next morning. The pot on the stove, that could have been Stephanie making tea or coffee for a guest, or, or even attempting to start a fire. That would actually be what the police would eventually start to believe. Someone left a burning pot of water on the stove in an attempt to burn down the cabin. Now, one of the most frustrating things about this case is just, though, how many plausible explanations there are for the state of things being left behind. There are so many inter interpretations of the scene 
none of them really match up with each other and none of them really make sense. It's like trying to solve a jigsaw puzzle, but you don't know what the picture is meant to be. You've only got half the pieces and you're blindfolded. Like, what was the meaning of any of this? Had Stephanie, you know, witnessed something? Well, it's unlikely, you know, anyone would carry out any kind of naughty activities. And I can't imagine they would do it right in the view of a look at terror. In fact, whatever happened, it would have happened in the middle of the night when Stephanie wouldn't have been in the tower. So another possibility suggested was that Stephanie, she was the victim of a random stranger attack, you know? Maybe she invited somebody into the cabin, was gonna make a drink for them, tea or something, and then they struck. But who, who was that stranger? Who, who would she have come in? Like, this was way out into the woods. You only would have been there if you wanted to be there or you were lost. Almost four years after Stephanie's disappearance, in July 2010, Lyle and Marie McCann disappeared while on a road trip in their RV from St. Albert, Alberta, to Chilliwack, British Columbia. A journey that, non-stop, you're looking at about 12 hours. But they were gonna stop. The couple, aged 77 and 78, they had been due to pick up their daughter on the 10th of July. Instead, police responded to reports of a suspicious fire at the Minnow Lake Campground near Edson, Alberta, which is about two hours west from St. Albert. The fire turned out to be a burning motorhome. It was the McCanns, though, when the police, you know, they put out the fire, there was no sign of Lyle or Marie and no sign of their Hyundai Tucson. On July 10th, when her parents failed to pick her up as expected and not being able to get in touch with them, the couple's daughter, Trudy, called 911 and reported her parents as missing. And it didn't take long for the RCMP to make the connection between the burned out RV and the missing persons report, and they launched searches in response. They visited McCann's home, found nothing. And six days after they had been reported as missing, the McCann's SUV was discovered just 18 miles east of Edson. Not long after the discovery, the RCMP announced they wanted to speak to 38-year-old Travis Vader as a person of interest, and they believed the McCanns met with foul play. An RV left on fire? Uh, yeah, that'll do it. That'll, that'll, that'll do it for you. Vader, okay, you know, now I usually call people by their first name, but I mean, this one, like, come on, of course I'm going to call him Vader. He had a long, shit-long uh, criminal history, going back years, ranging from friggin' vehicle theft to careless use and unauthorized possession of a firearm. He was like just taking pot shots left, left, right, and center. Some man for one man. Vader was arrested in Alberta on the 19th of July for outstanding warrants that were unconnected to the McCann's disappearance. They just needed some reason to put him behind bars. And Vader's own sister, she would say that Travis had stayed with her and her family in Edmonton the day after the McCanns disappeared and that he looked tired, sick, and needed to rest. He was officially made a suspect in the McCanns case on the 31st of August. Like, he was still in custody for those, you know, minor outstanding warrants at the time, and he wasn't uh, formally charged into this disappearance. The, you know, the authorities were looking to just build their case against Vader. A month later, in September 2010, Mounties announced that they were searching a property belonging to an acquaintance of Vader's. 
Officers from the Or CMP, they pretty much tore the property apart. They even had a dive team, you know, sieved through a pool and septic tank, but it seems they found nothing there at all. Fast forward then to the following year, with Vader still, you know, in jail behind bars on those outstanding warrants. On the 27th of June, 2011, investigators searched a second property. The same day as that second search, the McCanns were officially declared to be deceased. With authorities now publicly confirming they believed McCanns were killed the same day they were last seen, on the 3rd of July 2010. Though, their bodies were not found, and to date, have never been found. It wouldn't be until April 2012 that Vader would be finally, formally charged in the McCann's disappearance. He was actually charged with two counts of first degree murder. But despite this, you know, there was no obvious, no obvious like evidence that there was no bodies and no physical confirmation that they were even dead, which, you know, it's a super rare thing. It's a super hard thing to prove that you had killed somebody, you know, hey, good, uh, no, nobody, no crime. Very hard to make it stick. So, okay, listen, I hear you're barking, big dog, right? What's all this got to do with Stephanie Stewart, who disappeared from her fire tower? Well, Vader was in the area when she disappeared. Travis Vader, he picked on senior citizens as his victims. Bodies never found in either case. And the pot of boiling water is believed to have been an attempt to start a fire to cover up the scene just like he did by burning the RV in the McCann's case. So Vader, he would be convicted on the charges, uh, you know, he was initially being held for, those minor uh, outstanding warrants, that kind of stuff. The charges of murder, though, would eventually be dropped. It seemed like they they were worried they didn't have enough to actually, to actually prove he had murdered the McCanns. And Vader, in fact, would be released entirely from prison when being found not guilty of the initial charges, you know, the outstanding warrants. The trafficking, theft, and weapons charges. Calls an RCMP witch hunt. Put me forward in jail for four years to investigate me when there was nothing there to begin with. Vader insists he had nothing to do with the couple's disappearance. It's horrible. What do my children think? What they went through. So Vader was scot-free from everything until December 2014 when he was rearrested on suspicion of the McCann's murders. Now the trial wouldn't officially begin for the double homicide until March 2016 with the Crown's case relying largely on cell phone records of the McCann's and Vader with no bodies and no more evidence. The verdict would eventually come back with Travis Vader being found not guilty of first degree murder, but guilty of second degree murder. I have to say there's a whole lot of legal bullshit and fuckery going on in the background of this entire case. Like Vader would sue the RCMP, they would drop the case, they would recharge the case. And there was a whole lot of jumping through loopholes going on in the background. But he was eventually charged with it and convicted of second degree murder in the, well, whatever happened to the McCanns. The McCanns who have still not been found. And Travis continues to deny he was ever involved in the murder of the McCanns or Stephanie Stewart. See, Travis Vader is still currently serving his life sentence for the murder of the McCanns. He is still considered a named suspect in the Stephanie Stewart case. And he is the only named suspect in her disappearance. Now, investigators haven't released much about why Vader is the main person of interest, but they said they, they know he was in the area at the time 
And like the McCanns, they believe Stephanie was killed and her body dumped in the woods the same day she disappeared. There was a lot of similarities between these two cases, but we really do not know what happened to Stephanie Stewart. If anything good can be taken from the case of Stephanie is that her disappearance uh, drew attention to the total lack of safety protocols for, for fire watchers, you know. The access gates to the towers, they now have locked gates, so vehicles can't just drive up to the cabin or the tower without first, you know, getting permission. Other safety reforms include uh, each watcher having a personal locator beacon and panic buttons on their radios. They were also given codes that could be used to quietly and covertly call for help in the event that they were being held and unable to, to speak freely. And there's certainly no shortage of people disappearing in the woods. To briefly touch on another story with similarities to this one. In 2018, 76-year-old Connie Johnson disappeared. She was cooking at a hunting camp near Big Fog Mountain, Idaho. This, again, <laughs> remote is an understatement. Like, you go on Google Maps, you find it. You have to scroll out quite a bit to find the nearest road. She was last seen on the 2nd of October 2018. She was at the camp, her and her dog Ace. As I said, you know, she was cooking, the hunters left, and they were to return the following day. The next day, these hunters, they radioed Connie. But when they called her, they, they couldn't understand what she was saying, as the signal was too weak. When they returned back to the camp, her and her dog were gone. Now, Connie was experienced. Connie had literally been a park ranger herself, and she had been in the area many, many times before. Everything you can think of was done to find her. You know, helicopters, dogs, infrared cameras, and... nothing. Weirdly, about a month later, Ace the dog showed up. But no sign of Connie, and, and still none. And get a load of this, right? The very same day Connie vanished, just 50 miles away, a man named Terence Woods Jr. vanished. The very same day, only 50 miles away. The 5th of October 2018, 27-year-old Terence Woods Jr. vanished into the Idaho woods, and his story is even more bizarre than the other two. Terence Woods was from Maryland. He had studied in the UK at the American International University, and then after that he, he got into, you know, as a job, what he was studying was TV production. So he began working in the UK first in London after he graduated, working in like reality TV mostly. Uh, he began his career, for example, on uh, The Voice UK, so another singing competition. He was known as a kind, you know, nice guy, one person describing him as peer. So he spent five years in the UK before moving back to the US of A, and he got a job as a production assistant for the Discovery series Gold Rush, Dave Turin's Lost Man. The usual reality TV slop Discovery turns out these days. So they were filming in Penman Mine, an abandoned gold mine in Idaho. As I said, not a great distance from where Connie would have been that very day in the remotest of the remote. <laughs> As I said, you'd be traveling for a while before you'd find a real road. And so they were there, they were doing the shoot, and by all accounts, it was going really, really well. Unusually though, the morning of October 5th, 
Terence texted his dad, telling him he would be coming home early, cutting the trip short by a few weeks, which was very unusual for him. It was like he was he wasn't going to finish a shoot, he wasn't going to finish finish the work. That was very odd. Terence was somebody who he stuck to things. Then Later that evening, during the shoot, in the middle of this set, you know, in the woods, surrounded by filming equipment and staff and everything, Terence, he asked another person where the bathroom was, and then all of a sudden he simply dropped his radio on the forest floor and sprinted down a steep cliff and into the woods. He said nothing, he just ran for his life. Others, they tried to follow, but the terrain it was pretty bad and they soon lost him. One person there said Terence was running faster than he had ever seen anyone run before. And he has never been seen again. The search, it would go on for six days, same as the others, you know, dogs, ATVs, helicopters, all that for nothing. Now, the 911 caller who reported what had happened allegedly said Terence, he had a mental breakdown earlier that day. Quote, Terence had been having a really hard time emotionally and had a mental breakdown earlier today. But when this was followed up on, you know, uh, questioned journalists tried to ask around, you know, following up on his disappearance, everyone who was there kept their mouth shut. Everybody who's like on that production that day on that shoot stonewalled. Everybody who has tried to find out more about this met a brick wall. Now, Raw TV was the production company. They'd make the show, you know, and, and sell it to, to Discovery, right? Well, Terence's parents believe that Raw TV, it's hiding something about what happened to their son, that something more was going on. Raw TV have, you know, they have, of course, denied anything that had happened. Discovery, you know, everybody's cooperated with the investigation. And then, you know, they've all come out with public statements saying, you know, we've helped his parents. We flew them around. Terence, he was not subject to any mistreatments or anything else during his time with them. Now, previous employees would come forward saying there was a toxic work culture at Raw TV. But, I mean, to suddenly run into the most remote of forests, never to be seen again? I mean, something here, truly, it's is not adding up. Now, Terence, he didn't have a history of mental health issues. You know, others saying, uh, quote, here's a quote from a Deadline article about the mystery. No mental problems, no health problems, no communication problems. It doesn't make sense when I hear people say he struggled with his mental health or that he didn't live up to expectations. I spent six months on a TV production course with him and he always exceeded expectations and never showed signs of having any mental health problems. But they can't develop quickly under the most stressful of circumstances. So, like, is that what happened? Did he just have, is that why he ran into forest? Did he just have a mental snap, break, and just, you know, he needed to get away from the situation, and so he did the most base thing. He ran, he ran, he ran, he ran into woods, he got lost, and then, well, here we are. Or was it something else? Foul play. You know, the police have said, though, there's no evidence of anything happening, and the family, they hired two private detectives. Neither came up with anything. To date, it's equally, if not more mysterious than the disappearances of Stephanie or Connie, but it is very strange that Connie and Terence were relatively close to each other in this big, wild country. Something, something strange about those woods. They definitely hold the keys to both these mysteries, but who knows if they will ever be found.
It's all these cases are, are frustratingly sad, especially Stephanie Stewart. She seemed like such a cool lady, like with a whole lot more to give. The sentence for the McCanns might not have been perfect, but at least it gave the family something. At least the person they, they presumed did it. The police have the only named suspect in this case behind bars, so we can't do it to anyone else. And we can only hope that someday soon Stephanie's family can find some closure and get, get justice. This is a case that still haunts Alberta. They still are regularly, you know, saying anybody see something, say something. It's still, it's not a closed case just yet, but it is a cold one. Now, none of these victims have ever been found, but there is a whole lot of wilderness out there. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, being here with me, listening to me tell this whole story. I hope you found it interesting. Um, and yeah, here, really, guys, I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Uh, here, if I can ask you for anything, please rate, review, follow, subscribe, all that. It helps out incredibly much. Um, it helps out the podcast so, so much. So I hope, uh, I'm really loving doing this. So I hope you guys are enjoying uh, listening to it. Um, so yeah, next podcast will be out in a couple of days, every Monday, every Friday, with a video on the That Chapter YouTube channel every Tuesday. So look forward to that. But until the next one, take care of each other and yourselves, because guess what? I love you. Mike out.